All right, good morning. What a gift it is to be with all of you this morning. Would you join me in opening our Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses um, 1 and 2 this morning. Beginning in verse 1. He begins his epistle. Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter opens his first epistle by calling his readers God's elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And what a tremendously rich truth that is. We have been chosen by God for the privilege of knowing Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And um, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. It's always been God's pattern to choose sovereignly. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Verse 6, it says, God chose Israel. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7, it says, God chose Abram. In Psalm 135, verse 4, in Isaiah 41, verse 8, it says, God chose Jacob. In Haggai or Haggai 2.23, it says, God chose Zerubbabel. And we remember from John's gospel when Jesus himself chose his own disciples saying, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, it says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And so, here again in First Peter, then, we are not surprised as he identifies his audience as those who are chosen, the elect are chosen by God. And notice there in these few verses, it is the triune Godhead who saves. They had been chosen, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Through the sanctifying work of God the Spirit, for obedience to God the Son who sprinkled them with His blood thus atoning for his sins. Now, Peter begins his epistle this way because he wants to remind his readers, his persecuted brothers and sisters who have been scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that they may not be chosen of the world, but they are the chosen of God. And as we covered in our introduction, Peter is writing to 
God's elect exiles, aliens, strangers in the world because their true citizenship is in heaven. You ever feel like a stranger here on earth? But here and now, because they are elect and because they have been chosen by God here in this home here on earth, they are in fact exiles. We are the exiles. And in the provinces they lived, they were considered in many ways to be outcasts, marginalized. As hatred grew and persecution against the Christians, only being inflamed by being blamed for the fire set by Nero and the burning of Rome. And so it is important for them to understand that though they are hated by this world and hated by their neighbor, they were chosen by God. And so that's why Peter introduces this epistle in the way that he does. Now we notice from these first two verses seven implications of the doctrine of election, divine election that God chose you. First of all, we noticed the last time we were together the nature of our election, and that is to say that God has chosen us sovereignly by his unaffected divine will, strictly on the basis of his own free sovereign grace. We also noticed the condition of our election. Because we are elect, we reside, verse 1 says, as exiles. That is to say that we are strangers, pilgrims of this earth. We are temporary living on earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. We are a society within a society. We are governed by God. We are governed by God through His Word. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have convictions and beliefs and principles and pleasures that are totally alien to this world. We don't fit in. We are completely distinct. We do not love the world or anything in the world, 1 John 2 says. We are not friends of the world, James 4, 4 says. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Jesus said in John chapter 15, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you not, are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And that's the challenge, isn't it? That's the challenge we face, because we are not chosen just to exist as distinct or different. We are not chosen to, we are chosen to witness to a world in which that we are strangers in. And we witness not only by what we say, but we witness by what we are. The platform for what we say is what we are. We are ambassadors of Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us 
the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making His appeal through us. As God's elect, we are sent into the world as witnesses. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So here we are, this alien society within a society. We are a group of dispossessed pilgrims who live by a totally distinct standard. We cannot be friends of the world. We do not love the world or anything in the world. And yet we must speak to the world and live in such a way that the world is drawn to listen to what we have to say. That's a challenge. It's not easy being an effective witness to the world. And as things get darker and darker in the world, we tend to retreat further and further from the world into our own little societies, don't we? And you can imagine that in a persecuted environment like these first century believers, the tendency would be to draw more inward as persecution came. And for the sake of the support and love and friendship and and protection, of course, leading it all. And so we're going to find that Peter, through this first epistle and into the second, will remind the persecuted believers that they must not become ingrown because that's our tendency. We love each other so much. We just have so much in common with one another. We have the same worldview as one another. And one of the main pitfalls to Christianity is that probably the longer that you are a Christian, um, the less and less you ever interchange your life with all the unbelieving world. And so we can get so wrapped up sometimes in our own little Christian societies, can't we? A Scottish minister from the 1800s wrote, Seed in a basket isn't in the right place, but sown over the field, it will bring waving wheat in a month or two. And we must resist the temptation because of our condition as the elect and as strangers to become ingrown so that we become a society of ourselves talking to ourselves rather than evangelizing a lost world. But God has helped the process, hasn't he? Every time persecution comes against his church, guess what happens? The church expands. The church grows. The church scatters. We see this, for example, all throughout the book of Acts, but beginning in Acts chapter 8, it says, And there rose on that day, this is after Stephen's death, A great persecution against the church of Jerusalem led by Saul. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Hmm. Just as the Lord said. They were in Jerusalem. They were scattered to Judea and Samaria. Now, those who were scattered, look at this, went about preaching the word. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, 
they were baptized, both men and women. Persecution comes, the people scatters, the church grows. Every time the seed is emptied out of the basket and thrown into the field, it doesn't take long for there to be waving wheat. So that's the condition that we have to be aware of, of our election. We are chosen, yes, but we are also aliens. We're in the world, we're not of the world, and we desire a far better place, a place that is our true home. Speak of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith, when he was called, obeyed, by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien. Notice what verse 10 says. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's our city. That's where we belong. So that's the condition of our election. Next, I want you to notice the source of our election. The source. It says in verse 2, Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now some people say, yeah, see, that's it. <laughs> right there. That's how we were chosen. God, in his omniscience, um, looked down the quarter of time you would do, and he saw what I would do. And when he saw that we would believe, he chose us. And we saw that we would not believe, he did not choose us. The question we need to ask ourselves, is this what defines foreknowledge? Is this what Peter is intending when he writes this? And then I think a follow-up question would be, is that what the rest of the Bible teaches, right? Is that what the rest of the Bible teaches? Well, one of the ways we're taught to interpret and to teach uh, Scripture is to look at the other Scriptures that same use the same words or root words and that helps us to see how the word is being used elsewhere and usually gives us a, a fuller understanding of what the writer's intending by this word it's a good way to know if you're interpreting scripture correctly and lucky for us this same word for foreknowledge is used right here not only in the book of first peter but also in the very first chapter as well so just look for a moment down starting at verse uh, 18. It says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So the question is, what does Peter mean Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world? Does it mean God was up in heaven looking down the corridor of time and said, oh, I see what Christ is going to do. Now I get it. I don't think that's what Peter means by foreknowledge. So let's look at a, a few more examples to broaden our understanding of the biblical uh, definition of known or to know uh, for knowledge. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 4 1. 
This is great because this is the root word of foreknown, to, to know or, or knew. In Genesis 4.1 it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So knowing here is an intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. Adam knew Eve. He didn't just know about her, he knew her intimately. And so the verb here, yada, takes on a sense of to know uniquely, to know intimately, to know in a committed kind of a way. And then if you jump to Genesis chapter 18, verses 18 through 19, the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have known him. Now here, almost all the English versions try to help us by translating known to chosen. You've got a new King James, it, it says known. But again, this is the root word for yada, to know, chosen, for I have known him in order that he may command his children. So here it's not that I had sexual relations to him. That was a pointer in, in our first, uh, in Genesis 4. But I have set my favor upon him. I know him in, in such a, a unique and special way that he's mine now. I know him distinctly from other people. And that's what it says in, in Amos uh, when he's talking about the nation of Israel. The prophet declares, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, you only have I known. Only? Well, of course he knows about the Hittites and the Moabites and the Jezebites and so on. He knows about the other people, but only the nation of Israel, God saying, do I know in a close, committed, personal, uh, relational, knowing knowledge of you. He says in Exodus 19.5, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests for me, a holy nation. Israel, my elect. God's treasured possession. And then here's a text I think really sheds some light on how we should think about foreknowledge in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 3. Just a wonderful verse. The Apostle Paul says, But if anyone loves God, he is Known by God. Known. So you see, knowing is something that God does beforehand that brings about our love for God. In other words, we cannot love God unless we are known by God. So let's look at that word foreknowledge specifically. Um, Peter uses it a couple times. Turn in to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, you know what's going on in Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching. It's the day of Pentecost. He says something really interesting down in verse 23. He says, this man, speaking of Christ, this man delivered 
over by the predetermined, planned, and there's our word, foreknowledge of God. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This word for foreknowledge here is the word prognosis, and it refers to God's eternal, predetermined, loving, saving affection. It's God's deliberate choice. It's a predetermined relationship in the foreknowledge of God. Doesn't mean that he observed it before. It means he planned it before. His predetermined plan. This entire thing was God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. And then before we move, uh, move on, let me just give you a couple more illustrations of this in Scripture. For example, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. God says to, to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I what? I knew you. I knew you. What does that mean? Before you were ever born, I predetermined to have an a intimate, eternal relationship with you. Just incredible. And then there is uh, the prophet, great prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 2. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has concealed me, and he has also made me a select arrow, a chosen arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. So this is, again, the prophet Isaiah saying it happened before I was even born. Nothing to do with me. God had this whole thing planned out. God is sovereign. The Lord called me from my mother's womb. Wow. He predetermined a unique, intimate relationship with the prophet Isaiah. And then another example is from Matthew 7. We all know this, this chapter. Matthew chapter 7, Lord, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and then I will declare to them, I never, what? Knew you. He never knew who you were? No. That's what he's saying. He knew who, who they were. I never had a predetermined relationship with you. I never knew you in that kind of a way. I never knew you. The Lord doesn't know someone and then forget somebody. I never knew you. So let's take this and go back to 1 Peter now and see if this whole thing makes a lot more sense to us. Uh, in 1 Peter, uh, first of all, starting in, in our chapter 1, 1 through 2. And again, the question is, what does Peter mean? And, and again, what does Peter mean? Not what my idea of foreknowledge is. I, I, I've been taught lots of different ideas of what foreknowledge is or could be. You could just go look in a regular dictionary and come up with a lot of a, a totally different explanation. But what does Peter mean when he writes this? Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I think what Peter is saying here is this. Here's the simple definition. God has predetermined in his plan to set his love upon a chosen people for himself. God has a predetermined in his own plan to set his love upon a 
chosen people for himself. That's what I believe that means. It's not God looking down through a corridor of history and he saw what you would do and he saw what I would do and then he said, oh, now I know what they will do and now I'll choose them. That makes man sovereign, not God. No, God knows our election because he's the one who's ordained it. And so then when we jump down to verse 20, it really helps us understand this. Because what do you mean if we're using foreknowledge to God knew what? He just knew what Christ was going to do and so therefore he chose Christ to go to the cross? I mean, how do you explain that? Christ was foreknown before the foundation of, of the world. Uh, I could say that saying that God the Father in his plan of salvation chose to put his personal and special and unique and, and ultimate love upon the Son in that. So... God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that unique, special, one-of-the-kind Son, so that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you see why man hates this doctrine that is so very precious? In our fallenness, we desperately want some glory for our salvation. Even if we can just say, I chose God. But God has foreordained that he will get all the glory. As God says, I chose you before the foundation of the world so that no man may boast. Wow. Okay. Beloved, we love because he first loved us. What a glorious Lord. If anyone loves God, it's because he is first known by God. Wow. Wow, in other words, it had nothing to do, I didn't earn it somehow. There wasn't something that I did. No. So the nature of our election is that we were chosen by God. The condition of our election is we are aliens in this world. And then the source of our election is uh, it came out as a predetermined relationship with God. That's the source. God's own predetermined plan and relationship with us that God chose. Let's move next to the, the sphere of our election. Notice um, what this encompasses. Keep going in verse 2. It says, uh, Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So the sphere in which election goes from being like a, a plan to being a reality is through the sanctifying work of the spirit because um being chosen and being saved is is two separate events all right how long have you been chosen before the foundation of the world right how long have you been saved 10 12 years you were still chosen though you were dead and in, in trespasses and sins in one in, in which we once walked following the course of this world but see, there's a difference there. So no one is born saved, but you can be born chosen. And of course, only God knows who the elect are. But let's look at this precious gift of sanctifying. What is the sanctifying work of the Spirit? Well, Peter is talking about the new birth here. Uh, the Christian is chosen to be consecrated by the work of the Holy Spirit. Luther said, I believe that I cannot on my own reason or strength 
believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to Him, that is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And I would agree. The sanctifying work encompasses all that the Spirit produces in salvation. First we can say that He brings us faith. Ephesians 2 verses 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift from God. He also causes the heart's repentance. Acts chapter 11, 15 through 18. Peter's preaching is here. And he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the very beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in the way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This isn't just a Jewish thing. This is for all people. And then we also see that it's the Spirit sanctifying work that pr produces regeneration. We know this verse well from Titus 3, verse 5. We visit it often because it's such an important verse. Verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. These are all wrapped up in this word, um, sanctifying. Sanctifying. It's the word hagiosmos, where we get the word holy from, hagios. And it means to be set apart, to be uh, hallowed, to be consecrated, to be holy as I am holy. So it's the Spirit which produces the sanctifying work in salvation and all that that then also encompasses. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, 9-10 through 10 for just a moment. Beautiful section of Scripture. But you, these are the elect exiles who are hated and being persecuted and are on the run and feel like the whole world is against them. Peter says, but you are a chosen race. Not ethnically, spiritually. They are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These are all words that flash back to the Old Testament. And it says, you Jews, you Gentiles, you all are now a chosen race. You all are a, a royal priest. You don't have to be the Levites. You all are priests now. You all are a part of a holy nation a people for his own possession. That's what the words that God used for Israel. Now all people that are chosen, that are called, are people for God's own possession. That you, and this is important, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's right there. We see the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Right now he's setting you apart called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once, 
you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Listen to Acts chapter 15, verse 7 through 9. All the apostles and elders have gathered together this really big important meeting before the, the council in Jerusalem. And it says, after that there had been much debate, there was, there was a lot of contention on, on whether Gentiles essentially had to become Jews to, to be a part of this new ecclesia, the, the called out ones. And so there was all this debate going on. And Peter, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, and I will tell you, I've got this scripture mounted right in front of where I work and pray. God who knows the heart. God who knows the heart. For witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So Peter says that again. This is the same thing happening. And he made no distinction between us and them. And then notice having cleansed their hearts by faith. Well, who cleansed their hearts by faith? The Holy Spirit. That is the washing, the, the cleansing work of regeneration, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. God sends His Holy Spirit and He cleansed their hearts by faith. And that's why Jesus said in John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And, you know, it just blows Nicodemus's mind he says how can a man be born when he's old what do you mean be born again and he's thinking about a physical birth now I'm an old man how am I going to go through that again Jesus no 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 see unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God I'm not talking about baptism here there's what happens with a woman her water breaks it's a physical birth you need to be born both, yes, of water, a physical birth, and a spiritual birth. He's talking about being born again. Not about baptism here. <laughs> Can I enter the kingdom of God? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. If you're not born again in the spirit, you're still born just through a water, a water birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It's the Spirit who comes upon us and sets us apart from sin to righteousness, from darkness to light, from unbelief to belief, from death to life, from, from wretchedness to holiness. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, He saved us with no regard for what I've done, but according to what? His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Check this out. God the Father planned our salvation. The foreknowledge of the Father. God the Son purchased our salvation on the cross. God the Spirit applies our salvation, having cleansed our hearts by faith. He does the regenerating work. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, 
and with full conviction. Well, how do we know that these guys have been uh, chosen by God? Because we've witnessed them. These are changed men before us who now love God, who are full of conviction, who walk in the power of God, who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Their transformation was obvious. It's the sanctifying work of the Spirit that set them apart unto God. What does Paul say to the Corinthians? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Church, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, no idolaters, no adulterers, no men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such was I. I was guilty of these things. But Paul says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. We often think about sanctification as this, like, I don't know, thing that just maybe happens at salvation. Or, But listen, uh, once you've been set apart at the new birth, he, he continues to sanctify you, continues to purify you, continues to wash you. Though we are justified before God, we haven't yet arrived yet, right? <laughs> so our gracious Lord continues to refine me and he molds me and he shapes me every time the Holy Spirit is convicting me when I fall short. Romans chapter 6 lays out how um, sanctified believers live a life dead to sin and alive in Christ. And, um, you know, he starts off talking about, um, are we to continue in sin that um, grace may abound? No! And he talks about uh, our old self being crucified with Christ so that the, the body that was uh, ruled by sin uh, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to, to sin. And then he says down in verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin, this is Christ's work at the cross, finished, accomplished. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit of you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Wow. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And beloved, how important that is for us today. The world distorts the truth. The world lies about what the truth is. The world hates the truth. But Jesus said, I am the truth. Sanctify means to be set apart, to be called. Beloved, you have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The church today, they just want to blend in with the rest of the world. But you, beloved, have been called out from the world. You were supposed to be set apart from the world, called out from those former ways of life. You were a slave to sin, but now you are my elect the ecclesia, the church, the chosen, the, the called out ones. You are now a slave of Christ. We're called to be set apart for God and for His purposes now. His calling on our life. Now we live for Christ. Because you have been known by the true and living God from before the foundation of the world. He put His favor 
upon you when you were chosen. You have been set free from sin, it says, have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. I'll close today with a quote from one of the giants of the Reformation, Charles Spurgeon. I really uh, like this uh, letter. I think you'll get a kick out of it. Spurgeon writes, uh, before salvation came into the world, election marched in the very forefront. And it had, and it had for its work the, the billeting of salvation. Election went through the world and marked the house to which salvation should come and the hearts in which the treasures should be deposited. Election looked through all the race of man from Adam down to the last and marked with sacred stamps those whom salvation was designed. He must needs to go to Samaria, said election, and salvation must go there also. Then came predestination. Predestination did not merely mark the house, he mapped the road in which salvation should travel to that house. Predestination ordained every step of the great army of salvation. Predestination ordered the time when the sinner should be brought to Christ, the manner how, she, how he should be saved, the means by that which he should be employed. It marked the exact hour and moment when God the Spirit should quicken the dead in sin and when peace and pardon should be spoken through the blood of Jesus Christ. Predestined marked the way so completely to the house that salvation never overstepped the bounds and is never at a loss for the road. In the everlasting decree of the sovereign God, the footsteps of mercy were every one of them ordained. Election marked the house. Predestination laid out the path and the timing. And salvation followed the path. What a, a great picture of the incredible work of God. You know, I'll end with this. I think it was Spurgeon who... who told a story that uh, though the Bible is clear on who are chosen and elected, we don't know who the chosen and elected are. And I think he said if, if, the, if all the world had a, a yellow painted stripe on their back, he would run around from house to house lifting up the back of the shirt and preach the gospel to them. But that's not how it works. We have no idea who God has chosen. And so we preach the gospel to everyone. The invitation is open to whosoever should believe. And so that's the calling for us, not to figure out who in fact it is or, or to be frustrated or downcast that God has worked something against us. God is a good and righteous and gracious God. He is slow to mercy. He is, he is a God that has given... I tell you, if I thought I had any more dead chances left, I thought I was finished. And God still made a way. He still left that door open and, and we've told it many times that imagine how long my parents prayed. Years upon years, 20, 30 years, and as Elizabeth likes to say, many other people had prayed. And so we all have a, a son or a daughter or, or a father or a brother or sister and our hearts break for them. Um, don't go for that inward pull in. It is dark out there, but God has sent us on mission. We're ambassadors of Christ. And so important to remember that. Like Paul, if I'm to die, uh, I'm with Christ. <laughs> I'm with Christ. God is sovereign. He is a good God. And so uh, if you guys need prayers this morning, come forward.
And if not, we'll stand and sing the song of invitation. Thank you.